Today is Easter. And if you've been part of NRCC for a while, you know what we do on Easter. We tell or retell our story in some form or another. This is not a day in which we learn anything new. This is a day when we celebrate what we already know. Key to that uh, phrase is the word celebrate. Today, many of you will eat a special meal with some family or with some friends. Some of you took off the day from work on Friday or will take the day off tomorrow uh, from work. These are things that we do when we celebrate. I know some uh, tend to, we don't tend to do this so much, but some tend to wear special clothes on holidays. There's things that we do that mark a day as a day of celebration. And throughout human history, when people celebrate, one of the elements, one of the components is storytelling. And typically, we tell stories that have deep and significant meaning to us. So I want to tell or retell our story today. So we begin where all stories begin, at the beginning. We have a poem in our tradition. Many of us didn't even know it was a poem. It's the first chapter in our scriptures. It's, we don't think of it as a poem because we're used to poems rhyming, but not all poems do rhyme. In the Hebrew worldview from which that poem emerged, the poetry was done by structure. And so you'll see the structure in that first chapter of our scriptures that say this, 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 and this, and this, and it was good. This, 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 and this, and it was good. This, 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 and this, and it was good. That's how we know this is poetic language. And the significance of knowing that is a poem is because we realize that people write poetry different than they write historical chronology. They don't write it with the same purposes. They write it for a different. They're trying to convey something deep and something meaningful. And concrete words won't do. Practical, tangible stuff won't do. We need to talk about the biggest truths. And so we need images and we need, we need stuff of poetry, the stuff of love and the stuff of language. So it's a poem, ours, a poem of beginnings. It's a poem that tells us that yours and my origins go something like this. In the beginning, there was love, self-contained love, love in completeness, love in wholeness, love complete in its own sweetness. And yet, mixed in with love, there was something else. There was desire. Desire for an even more full expression of love. Desire on the part of the fullest of fullness to be yet even more full. Desire for a more complete manifestation of love. Desire for counterpart. And in the time before time, and in the time before clocks were ticking, And in the time before moments existed, there came a moment, our poem tells us. There was a moment in which the divine voice rang out. Now again, this is a poem, and they speak with veiled language. For example, a voice couldn't have been the way that we think of a voice because there were not yet vocal cords and there were not yet sound waves and there was not yet air on which those sound waves could travel. There was just a pre-emergent reality. So this voice in some kind of transcendent way, the same way that we experience, absorb, 
listen for that transcendent voice today, this voice spoke. And out of the speaking, there burst forth trillions and trillions and trillions of points of destiny. You and I are each one of those points of destiny. The trees that are outside of our windows are points of divine destiny. The rocks and the rivers and the oceans are points of destiny. I've been working out here in preparation for our landscaping day and meeting with contractors and deliveries and all those kinds of things. So I've been, had cause to sit in Aaliyah's office in the front and to walk around our property quite a bit in the last two weeks. And I realized we have neighbors here. We have a family of hawks that live over our um, woods over here. They are usually together. And every once in a while, an interloper will try and come in and crowd their territory, and they will start dive-bombing them. It's quite entertaining. Most of you have met our neighbor, the cardinal, who sits outside our door and tries to fight himself in the reflection of the mirror and, or in the reflection of the glass, trying to work, to work his way back in. He has a cousin, a bluebird. You know, bluebirds are getting kind of rare in North Carolina, but we have a, a delightful bluebird who lives out on this side of the property. That's his territory, and he's taken a liking to my car, particularly to my mirror. <laughs> and he comes, and he sees his reflection in the mirror, and either he thinks he's so incredibly beautiful, which, which he is, or he thinks he's uh, an adversary and he wants to fight him. In any case, he goes after himself in the mirror with great ardor, with great fervor. And if he is indeed frightened by himself, it's scaring something out of him because it gets all over the side of my car. <laughs> so we've got these points of destiny that emerged from voice in an instant, and out of voice came trillions and trillions and trillions of points of destiny. And for quite a while, our story tells us, this voice gushed forth these points of destiny again and again and again. Elements, atoms, molecules, stars, planets, water, microbes, pine cones, kangaroos, all manner of things burst forth in this creative energy from voice. But... Toward the end of this burst of creative energy and before the long process of living out this creative burst of energy, divine love created one more important point of destiny, an important one to us at least, for it was then that voice spoke into existence humanity. Divine love created humanity. This is from whence we come. Now, if there were observers at that time, if there were angels or spirits or some such thing, then there would have been a collective gasp when humanity was spoken into being. For when divine love created humanity, the very spirit of divine love was manifest in concrete matter, in tangibility, right there with lungs and blood, and bones, and intestines right there made of the very elements of dust, of clay. Divine love manifests its own image in matter. Divine love was cast with hands, and feet, and arms, and legs, and eyes, and ears. This 
our poem tells us, was the sixth part of this creative burst. And the seventh was a day for exultant admiration and enjoyment, a day to rest and admire, a day for wonder, for admiration, for surprise at the creative loveliness, a day of savoring. This first day after the savoring then, the eighth day, if you will, began a very long journey. A long journey toward the manifestation of divine destiny. A day began a journey toward fulfilling this mandate that was infused into the creation of the human being. This vehicle that was cast as the divine spirit in flesh. Now along the way our story tells us there was a little bit of head scratching and horse trading about the singularity of this manifestation of love. It was not good for this one manifestation to be alone. So out of that there emerged a plan for making duality out of singularity. And all of a sudden there was a masculine version of God's image and a feminine version of God's image, a male way to be divine love and a female way to be divine love. And the emergence of this duality became a picture that would remain in the hearts and the minds of human beings up until this present day. It was a picture of a dream, a picture of a desire, a picture of the destiny for which we are created by God. For when you see the male longing for female, when you experience that passion yourself, when you experience or see what it feels like for the female to be drawn to the male, you see something of a glimpse, something of a glimmer. And that glimpse is of the divine's yearning to find counterpart in the human the draw of the human to the divine and the draw of the divine to the human are pictured as the lover and the beloved, the bridegroom and the bride. These things with which we are so familiar in our own experience speak volumes to us of the hunger and the passion and the ardor and the draw that are just glimmers of what is embedded in that voice speaking forth the love that looks for a counterpoint to point. And the image of bridegroom and bride became a very helpful one. And collectively, male and female alike, we have become in this image the bride of God. When we feel our own hungers, when we understand that context, it is there that we understand the divine heart. That inside of us which is biologically driven, that which inside of us which is emotionally driven and psychologically driven, even socially driven, this compulsion that we have for one another speaks of this grand design spoken forth at the first moment. Now, if the voice was speaking words, these words would have been these. This is my beloved bride. I love her without distraction. I love her continually, and I love her completely. There is no interruption in the gaze of delight that I have 
when I look upon her. And she, she will learn to love me as well. She will learn the same passion and fulfillment that are born of that which is embedded in her very being. The essence from which she is made will call forth that same love toward me. She will be counterpoint to my point, and in so doing she will find her yearnings satisfied. Now we are people, and people love stories. And stories take certain forms. There are people who study nothing but the way the stories are told. And one genre that occurs regularly is this. Good is. And good is going on. And good is enjoyed. And good is good. Now maybe it's a good romance. Maybe it's a good relationship. Maybe it's a good friendship. Maybe it's a good society. Maybe it's a good business. Maybe it's a good something. But good is and good is going on. And then in this genre of story, there comes bad. And bad is now inserted into the story. And the rest of the story from that point on is about getting back to the good after this bad has happened. Now we see this genre, we see this form in movies, we see it in love stories, we see it in social commentary, we see it in all kinds of things, we see it in our books, we see it in our great timeless myths, we see this genre occur again and again. There's something archetypical about this genre, there's something transcendent about this story form. Now we are people who follow God, we are people of the story, and consequently we think we've got an idea of why this pattern, this genre of story resonates so deeply with human beings. We think it resonates so deeply because that story form mirrors our ultimate story. Things were good, good, good. There was a garden. There was union. There was good romance. There was good friendship. There was a good society. There were walks in the cool of the evening with the humanity and divinity walking side by side. Things were good, and then things got bad. And the rest of the story from this point on is about getting back to the good from the bad. The bad that happened in our story is that the bride cheated on the groom. The bride committed adultery. The bride was unfaithful. And when this happened, a new reality entered into the human experience. Goodness and light now had traveling companions, evil and darkness. We see evil and darkness as the absence of God, the absence of goodness. And there was a whole bunch of God absence that began to enter into the human experience. People began to hurt one another. People began to kill one another. Cain killed his brother, Abel. People begin to wound one another. Their indiscretions, their unfaithfulness, their infidelity manifested in the absence, the removing themselves and going to other partners that turned out 
such that people begin to disregard the points of destiny that God had vested in themselves and had vested in others and begin to disregard the points of destiny that God had invested in the earth and the planet. And so consequently, they begin to disregard the rocks and they begin to disregard the streams and they begin to disregard the animals and the air. And so they fouled the environment and they begin to disregard their loved ones so that they fouled their own homes and they fouled the marketplace and they fouled society society and they fouled their families and with each one of these infidelities each one of these destructive acts of betrayal they became more and more locked in bewilderment and in confusion when they knew what was good it turned out in fact that it was bad when they deeply believed something to be bad it turned out that it was in fact good their instincts began to betray them. Infidelity became less an act of betrayal and more an act of simply being. It became the norm. It became the habit. It became the way of being. Humanity became so trapped in unfaithfulness that we were completely unaware of its existence. And each time that the bride was unfaithful, Each time that she stepped out of the sanctity of their union, the bridegroom, the lover, would pursue her. She will love me. She will learn to love me. She will be restored to me. But each time that the bridegroom would pursue the bride, she would return for a while, but then go back to her infidelity. And each time she did the bridegroom would tirelessly, unflaggingly pursue her. This was true in Abraham's time. This was true in Moses' time. This was true in David's time. This was true in the times of the prophets. And this is true yet today in our own time. And in our story, the bride's infidelities wound the lover deeply In some instances, it appears that his anger would flare up, but mostly she would simply break his heart. And now we get to the Easter part of the story. But there came a day, a day about 2,000 years ago, when divinity more clearly intersected time and space. When the divine spirit of love was most clearly manifest on the earth. The lover came definitively to woo back the beloved. The lover walked the earth seeking to win back his bride. Now, one of the first things that the lover did was to go to the desert. And there was a wild man there. This man who was calling people to return to the bridegroom, to turn from their infidelities, He would shout to the crowds and he would say, Stop being unfaithful. Come back to the bridegroom. Now he was a strange one, this wild man. He wore funny clothes. He ate funny food. But you know, he kind of needed to be strange because he was asking people to go cross-grained to their fouled instincts. He was asking people to go out of the ways that had become so normative and natural to them 
He was asking people who were suffering from their unwitting, unthinking, unchallenged ways to turn and begin to think a new way and to see a different way, ways that previously had betrayed the groom, that were destroying their points of destiny. The wild man was calling them to change, to turn. And one day, the wild man introduced the earth to the lover. This one, he said, walks faithfully with the lover. This one walks in purity. This one walks in unbroken love with the groom. This one is a prophet. This one will open doors for us that have up until now been closed. Listen to him. Listen to him. Then the wild man baptized the groom, and the groom set out on his task of wooing back the bride. On one day, in one instance, on the road, the groom, the lover, heard wailing above the noise of the crowd. And he stopped and he turned and he said, My beloved, I must go to her. A young woman, she was a whore. And she wailed out in deep anguish and in deep pain. The consequence of walking the life that had been apart from her true love had led her to such woundedness and such pain that she was deadened to light and deadened to life. And out of that anguish there came a deep wail, and this prophet understood her wail. Here, he said, is daughter of my counterpart. As her mother had been, so had she been, a wandering lover beaten and bruised by her wanderings, wailing in pain from her wounded and broken soul. And on that day, at that moment, at that wooing, the crowd was watching the prophet carefully and seeing on his face understanding and seeing on his face pity and then seeing on his face anger at the injustice of what had happened to his beloved, but above all, seeing on his face unshaken and unshakable love. For the lover looks past the outer destruction, looks past the matted hair, looks past the sarcastic sneer, looks past the snarls, the laughter, looks past that which is hideous, that which is born of sin, that which is born of bruise. And he sees the destiny spoken forth before the earth is born. He sees his bride as she shall be. And then, with an intent that is born of eternity, with a thundering voice, he says, She is mine. I will have her. She is not yours. She is mine, and I have come for her. And a part of his bride in that moment, on that day, in that instance, is set free. And it begins a process of the wooing, one after another, into the light, into the life, into the redemption, into the restoration. Again and again and again, the bride is wooed. And the prophet speaks and says, the reality as you understand it is not reality. Sickness is not sickness. Poverty is not poverty. 
there is another way. There is a way that you can live in love linked with one another that is a manifestation on the earth that mirrors that transcendent love which it exists in heaven. There is another way of life, another way of living. Look beyond your limited reality. And many, many are drawn back to the groom. Many, many of the bride return. Many are called back from their wandering. But as has been her pattern throughout time, she turns on him yet again. Crucify him, she says. Crucify him. And the lover is beaten, and the lover is bloodied, and is driven to a hill, to a cross, to spikes, to a spear. But rather than run away, the lover runs toward the hill. And in so doing, he sets up a divine challenge before infidelity and takes on all the horribleness, all the sinfulness. When Cain killed Abel, it is taken into his breast. David's lust for Bathsheba that caused him to take her and destroy and kill and murder her husband, that's taken into his breast. The sin of the Inquisitions, of the Crusades, of the Holocausts, of the Genocides, the betrayals of people of one another, the Watergates, the Enron, the needless wars, the fruitless wars, the pride, the fear, the bitterness, the meanness, the unforgiveness, the curtness, the disrespect, all of those things are taken into his breast as he takes up a challenge intent with one purpose, and that is to destroy them. For they go to the cross with him. They go to death with him. They are laid upon him. Now again, he doesn't go to this challenge begrudgingly. One of the soldiers observing this process notes that this prophet, this carpenter, willingly lays himself on the cross, willingly opens his hands to the spike. And as the last spike is driven in and as the cross is lifted up for a moment, it appears that time stops and there, suspended Above all things is the cross. Suspended above the unfaithfulness of the bride. Suspended above the workings of evil. Suspended above broken hearts. Suspended above squandered destinies. Suspended above habitual failure. And again, if there were witnesses in this transcendent realm... If there were angels watching, again, they must have gasped and said, this is the moment we have anticipated for so long. This is the time when all things are being reconciled to the lover. This is the beloved being brought back, being reconciled to divine love. But there was one formidable adversary, and that was death. And death was not of the mind to go quietly into the night. And death wrapped its wings around the lover and began to squeeze the last breath out of its prey. And indeed, 
the body of the lover dies. And as it does, death must have gloated. I, not the lover, have conquered. I, not the lover, have vanquished. I have vanquished even life itself. I am the victor. And death turns to celebrate in victory. But here's where our story takes a dramatic turn. And that is something happens. Somehow a force greater than death itself grips death and slowly, inexorably takes even death and brings that to the breast of the lover. And indeed all things, even death itself, are crucified with the blubber. And for three days, a cold body lies in a tomb. Three days in which to challenge death. Three days in which to challenge evil. Three days in which to fight against all that keeps the bride locked in infidelity. Three days in which hope fights against despair. In which life fights against death. In which good fights against evil. And on the third day, light explodes from within the corpse. The final victory over death is won. The lover's hands shoot up from death and pull off the grave clothes and jumps up and proclaims, she is mine. I have come for her. And in triumph, the bridegroom speaks, where are her enemies that I have not vanquished? Where are her false suitors? Where are those who would vie for her affections? And he stands, an eternal man, a death-defeating and risen man, a lover triumphant in his quest. I am risen. All things are under my feet. I am risen from the grave and nothing, nothing, nothing shall have my bride save myself. And he turns and he walks out of the tomb, light flowing from his being. A mighty shout from angelic spectators. The lover triumphant is claiming his beloved. No rivals, no suitors, no enemies. He will have his bride. And that is the day that we remember on this day. This is the day that our lover came for us, and that is what we remember this day. This is the day we remember what our lover did, but even more, we remember who our lover made us to be. We are his bride. We are created counterpoint for divine love. We are destined for the eternal expression of love. We are destined to go back to good in this linear future that brings us to the transcendent good that ends our story. It was good, it got bad, and it is made good yet again. We are destined to be a glorious bride without spot and without wrinkle, bought with the blood of our lover. 
So when we stand and say, as we so regularly do here together, that your God transforms you, when we listen to Sarah talk about what she did this morning of a huge shift of the redemptive work of God in her life, we say these things with the authority of the wooing God. We speak of the redemptive, transformative power of God The authority born of a lover who has come for us, who has sacrificed on our behalf, who has defeated evil, even defeated death itself on our behalf, and who has made way for all of us to walk into the destiny that was set for us before the foundations of the earth. When destiny was spoken from voice, we have a lover who has come for us to assure that we step into and fulfill that destiny. And when we invite one another to redemption, we do that invitation with the power of inevitability. When we are invited to the dance, when we are invited to communion, when we are invited to union with God, we we do so with the force of inevitability. Our God has won our freedom. Our God has won our restoration. Our God has made a way for us to be what we are created to be. When we began our walk with God, we did so with a simple prayer, and it was a prayer of desire. I desire you, God. I desire your ways. And when we did that, when we made that simple prayer of desire, we partnered with a force that will not be thwarted. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, Paul tells us. You are holy and sacred beings. Though vice still exists in your habit, though vice still exists in your behaviors, it has been once and for all definitively defeated. You are the virtuous one. You are the spotless one. You are the glorious bride without wrinkle. It has been one. And evidence to the contrary, and there's plenty of it, is only feeble. It is only temporary. It is weak. And it is on its way to the ash bin of history. The habits and patterns that keep you locked in relational stress and tension are on their way to the ash bin of history. The pride that keeps you, that drives you, The envy, the lust, the gluttony, those things that have such destructive power in our lives are all on their way to the ash bin of history for they have been defeated. The bridegroom has come for us. We are on our way with the force of an inevitability to a wedding feast. Union with the divine is our destiny. It is our destiny here on this earth to walk with God to sing with God, to dance with God. And it is true in eternity after our bodies breathe their last. We are followers of Jesus Christ. We are transformed by the redeeming power of Jesus Christ. We are on a journey of redemption and transformation that takes us to the very likeness of God and it is born in our God through the work of Jesus Christ that we celebrate on this day. And so we remember our story. It is our celebration to remember. Lord God, 
maker of heaven and earth, Lord God, lover of souls, essence of love itself. Lord, we come from you. We come from your very nature. Fulfill the destiny for which you have created us. Open us to the fullness of the experience of that which you have already done. Help us find in our prayer, help us find in our quietness, the quiet rhythm that goes with already being people of destiny, being people of transformed, redeemed love. Be it so in us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.